Welcome to Indie Film Weekly, a No Film School podcast. I'm Liz Nord. I'm John Fusco. I'm Charles Hain. And it's May 25th, 2017. On this week's show, the non-news from television's upcoming seasons and what it means for indie directors, an alternative to YouTube for online creators, and the right way to get your actors on book. And as always, news you can use about new gear, upcoming deadlines, indie film releases, and Ask No Film School. Welcome to this week's show, coming at you from downtown Brooklyn, New York, home of No Film School. And as always, we're here to bring you everything you might have missed while you were busy making films. So once again, we are missing the lovely Emily Booter, who as we speak, is flying home from France from the Cannes Film Festival, and next week's show, she'll bring you all the news from the ground. Meanwhile, a bit of news from this side of the pond. A couple weeks ago, we reported on the new fronts where digital platforms try to sell their upcoming entertainment wares to advertisers. Last week, the up fronts were held, which are the TV equivalent of the new fronts, wherein American broadcasters unveil their new shows and try to convince advertisers that it's even worth spending money on TV anymore. Unlike in the digital space where indie directors are flourishing, see example A, indie shooter Reed Morano directing the first three episodes of Hulu's A Handmaid's Tale, the five big networks seem to be digging their heels even deeper into their own legacies. The slate of 39 new shows for 2017 and 2018 includes very little that's wholly original. Instead, there are revivals. Yep, you heard it right. Roseanne is coming back. With John Goodman? Is John Goodman in? I think so. I've seen. I, that's the thing is I haven't seen any actual pictures of them together yet, like newly together. But on social media, they keep advertising it with old clips of John Goodman and Roseanne together. So, I assume. How can you have? I've never seen Roseanne, but how can you have Roseanne <laughs> without John Goodman? You 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 you've never seen Roseanne. <laughs> Another file to add to the John is young file. Which I prefer to the Liz is old drawer. P.S. Anyway, so Roseanne's coming back. Plus, we have spinoffs, franchise extensions, and remakes galore. And almost all of them are being produced by the studios owned by the same parent companies as the broadcasters. As Allison Herman wrote in The Ringer, companies increasingly prefer to do business with themselves. Herman said, in a sure sign of the times, literally the same people, Dana Walden and Gary Newman, now run both Fox and its studios. Can we make that a portmanteau? Can we make that like corporation or corporation? Oh, corporation. That's a good one. You heard yeah. it here first, folks. So the takeaway from all this for indie filmmakers is that traditional broadcast is getting even more cautious in its programming and less friendly to unique new voices. So when we talk about the age of cinematic TV, we're definitely talking about subscription networks and streaming services. And that's where you should be looking to pitch your projects. There was one upcoming network show announced last week that's worth mentioning because of its link to indie film and, well, to this very podcasting booth. You're about to learn some fun facts about No Film School. Fun facts. John, can you do like a fun facts uh, sound effect? Okay, yeah. Can you go fun facts for me? Fun facts. There it is. There's the sound effect. (laughs) No, we all have to do it together, right? All right. Count of three. Okay. One, two, three. Fun Fun facts. facts. (laughs) I love it. Okay. Here's your fun fact. It was long enough ago that some of you might not remember, some of you like John, uh, that before Zach Braff became known as JD on nine seasons of Scrubs, he made his name as a director on indie film hit Garden State, in which he also starred with Natalie Portman. Now Braff is back to directing and starring in a new ABC show called Alex, Inc. 
The show is based on the real-life story behind the popular podcast company Gimlet Media, which is documented in their first season of their podcast, Startup. And it's about how this guy, Alex Bloomberg, left his job to start the Gimlet Podcast Network in a wacky, artist-filled co-working space in Brooklyn, which happens to be our wacky, artist-filled co-working space in Brooklyn. We took over the space and Gimlet's podcasting booth when they outgrew it, so I'm really looking forward to seeing how it's all represented on the show. Especially Did you watch the thing? There's a trailer of it. Yeah, there's a trailer. Yeah, it's pretty funny. Yeah, and it's like, that trailer is set in the place where we do the show. I uh, know, it was super meta, although it looks a lot cleaner than our office does. Yeah, right. Our booth is better now, too. We have better sound, I think. Yeah. Thanks to... Thanks and to definitely me and Ryan. better looking hosts. Um, I will also say that, uh, in contrast to what you were saying about how uh, network television isn't a good place for indie directors to be looking or emerging film directors to be looking, one piece of news I did hear about from the upfronts or the news fronts or whatever the upfronts. how many fronts um, is that uh, Super Deluxe, who we had on the podcast back in. Uh, back at Sundance, they actually just got a whole new time slot devoted to them on TBS. So there's three new shows in development for this sort of late night uh, time slot on, I think it's TBS, because Turner owns Super Deluxe. So in that sense, what Turner is doing as a corporation is looking towards these newer models of filmmaking to bring into their old sort of uh, guard but since Turner owns Super Deluxe, it's still corporation. Yes, that's yes, exactly. But they're looking to new filmmakers for voices because Super Deluxe is definitely one of the cutting edge uh, places for content on the internet and really now in the entire entertainment industry. That's great. I think it's really important to bring up counterexamples because certainly the the classic networks ABC, NBC, CBS. It's just not, it's just not the case. And there's some good news if creating for the online space is more your speed, which I guess, is that where Super Deluxe started with online content? Yeah, Super Deluxe is uh, online content right now. The the filmmakers that I interviewed that worked with Super Deluxe used them more as a production company to get their shorts off the ground. And now those shorts are premiering at festivals and then being put online. So I think that what they're trying to do is really move into, um, you know, the TV space or the video space. But I think online is really where most of this content is going these days. So Well, yeah. So if you all are creating stuff or, or trying to launch your careers from the online space, basically in the midst of a YouTube advertising boycott, which I like this, it's dubbed the ad Apocalypse. It started in late March and it's causing creators to lose money. In the midst of all that, crowdfunding platform Patreon just announced that it will pay creators 150 million bucks this year. So Patreon is not based on advertising. True to its name, it's based on patronage. It lets fans fund your ongoing content creation with a monthly subscription amount of their choice. According to TubeFilter, donors on Patreon typically pay $12 a month, which is 50 to 10,000 times more money than a creator can make per fan via ads. This news all comes after Patreon. As you can tell, by the way, I can't decide how to pronounce Patreon. Patreon? Patreon? It's Patreon. Yeah. Good thing these guys are here. This news all comes after. Say it again. Patreon. Patreon. <laughs> Fun fact. Fun fact. It's Fun pronounced facts. Patreon. 
announced. Patreon? <laughs> Patreon? It's a fun alternative fact. So Patronus announced <laughs> an enormous $30 million funding round in January. So if you're looking to put your stuff up online and cultivate a community of loyal fans, the site seems worth a look. And for anyone who's read any of our video essay posts, all of those video essays are backed by pa- Pat. God damn it. Now you're making me Patreon. think about it twice. Patreon. It's always been Patreon for me. But anyways, Patreon. All of them have Patreon channels. And that's how I think they make a lot of their money. So... If you're a video essayist or you're making short form content, get paid for it. Fun fact. Moving on to Gear News, Charles. Hey, this is Charles here with Gear News and Fun Facts and Mispronunciations. Uh, so, uh, first up, yesterday, DJI just launched another new drone, which is a statement I feel like I'm making like every other time I'm on the podcast. This time it's the 499 Spark drone, which is smaller than a soda can, which, as Liz pointed out, is also a reference that was used for the GoPro Karma drone that came out last year. Apparently, soda can is like the default reference size for small drones. So, this is more a consumer tool than a filmmaker tool, but DJI has announced this mark, which is a drone that's designed to always be with you. Um, it's so small, it's going to make a great scouting or backup drone to just throw in your ditty bag. And really, I see it more being used by filmmakers for like previs and scouting. You're at a location scout, you want to see what's on the roof, you want to get some overhead stills for camera and lighting blocking, you want to previs what you might do later with an Inspire 2 or a Matrix. This is a drone that is inexpensive enough and light enough that you can just leave it around. Even as a New Yorker, where drones are banned, basically, the price-to-benefit ratio is finally getting to the point where I'm kind of tempted to get one. Because then you've always got it with you wherever you go, and even if you haven't planned a drone shot, uh, it'll be available to you. It's limited to 1080 video, but it does do 12 megapixel stills. And the big cool feature is that within 10 feet, you direct it with your hands by, like, waving it around, and it recognizes you, and you can, like make hand signals to have it take a photo, which is really cool. Up next, 24 Shots makes wireless follow focus easy with a new system. Wireless follow focus has exploded in like the last year or so to be a really competitive market. Tilta had a great $1,200 solution at NAB that they're actually going to release at Cinegear. And uh, the new system from 24 Shots comes in under 1000 bucks. So it's a trigger-controlled system, not a knob. You've got, like, a little trigger that you can, like, push forward and back with your finger. It allows for, like, very fine adjustments. And then you can change the power with an app. So if you're like, ah, I push the trigger and the focus goes too fast, you can slow the roll down in the app of the responsiveness speed. You can also set, like, 20 focus points if you have a really complicated pre-planned move and it'll move through them in sync with your timing. Most interesting, it does a turbo mode, which is designed for like really stiff lenses. So if your lenses are heavy, you're working with a vintage lens set that maybe some of the other motors haven't been powerful enough to turn. Hopefully in turbo mode, you'll still be able to pull focus with that glass, all for under a grand. Uh, The last bit of gear news is tiny, but it's so well thought out, I thought it deserved to mention. Zakudo has come out with a new lens support for the Fujinon MK line of zoom lenses. And it's really just neat in its simplicity. Instead of, like a lot of times when you swing a lens and you need to put a new lens support on, you got to like take all your focus motors off. But Zakudo has designed this so you don't have to move anything off the rails. 
if you swing over to the NK Zoom, you can attach the Zacuto support with like a cool scissor action, and it's got a little hinge so it can fold down and store on the body in the case. It's like a lot of cool little small things that all add together to make it really interesting. And uh, so if you're going for the MK lenses, it's worth a look. And then if any of you are going to be at Cinegear next week out in L.A., I will be there on Friday. So if you see me, say hi. Thanks, Charles. And this week in Ask No Film School, Larry Stanley wrote to ask us, I've read that you shouldn't have actors memorize their lines before the first rehearsal to keep them from forming line readings and such. So we can first meet and discuss objectives. But, he asks, if you only have time for a couple rehearsals, is getting on book prior to meeting a good idea or a bad one? And to answer that, we have acting expert, John Fusco. Acting and directing, I think now. (laughs) At this point? (laughs) Come on. Okay, so I kind of disagree with uh, the initial statement here, so uh, let's let's unpack that one first. Um, Of course, you know, Working with actors is going to be something that you're going to be uh, constantly fine-tuning your process to be uh, with every shoot that you do based on what you find works best uh, out of your own personality, you know, to find uh, what you'll get out of your actors' personalities. I can say, for me, though, if I had limited time to prepare with my actors, I would 100% want them to have their lines down before they came into the room, and I would want them to have them down, 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 like down pat, And this is something that I guess comes from my own training uh, back in college. But the lines themselves aren't really that important. Um, It's this sort of base of having the lines down and memorized that allows your actors to stop worrying about that shit and actually um, bring some life to the scene. And this is always kind of a difficult thing to, um, to describe but a good actor won't really come in with line readings. They'll have the text down pat as this base, and then, as I said, they'll discover the life within the scene. The better the actor knows his lines and the circumstances surrounding them, which is something I'll get onto later on in the show, the freer they will be to make discoveries within the context of a rehearsal. In fact, there's no reason why the actors shouldn't be working on their objectives, as you put it, while also memorizing their lines. Um, I don't think it's too much to ask an actor if you're hiring them and paying them uh, to do their full job and to do their homework. That way, when you all gather for the first time, you can both discuss what their character's desires are within a scene, and it will be more of a sort of collaborative effort as a result. So you'll be talking about their ideas for the character, you'll be giving your own ideas for the character, and uh, hopefully, you know, you can find something together rather than having uh, to give them line readings, as you say. Well, so John, what does one do as a director to keep the emotions or like the feeling of the scene fresh if the lines are all memorized? Um, well, that's the thing. I mean, if you do find them giving line readings, uh, A, just call them out for it <laughs> in rehearsal. Um, it's better to do that in a rehearsal than it is on a film shoot, I imagine. Um, But one way you can stop an actor from giving a line reading is to remind them of two things or to make sure that they're doing two things. And that is, one, you're asking them what their objective in the scene is. And then through that text, the actor uses an action to get something out of their partner. So 
instead of saying the line, they're playing the intention behind the line. And that's something that I had to do in school all the time was just to write like two blank next to a line and then play that action while having the line memorized. So in that sense, that action becomes more important than the text itself. And then two is to make sure that they're focusing on their scene partner rather than focusing on themselves. Because if they place that attention off of their own like idea of how the line should be read, or if they're thinking about you know this awesome way that they've done the line in the past, instead of focusing on what their partner is doing, right at that very moment, then it's going to come off like a a line reading. So you want them to have that focus on their scene partner instead of themselves, and then there will be a more sort of organic reaction to the dialogue that's being spoken between them. So again, these are really difficult things to explain, Um, but, you know, the more you can do to ensure your actor is in the moment um, by having them do their homework before, I think that's a really great strategy for directors to have. So get your get your actors off book um, as soon as you can and just make sure that they're focusing more on their actions than their lines. And I think you should be fine. My suspicion reading because you say, Larry, Mr. Stanley, you say, I've read you shouldn't have actors memorize your lines. And I'm going to guess that this isn't actually about trained professional actors. I'm going to guess this is about children and non-professionals. Because, like, Milos Forman has that famous quote where he's like, I never even give non-professional actors the script because you don't end up getting to direct them. You get their wife's direction. And, like, I've definitely had that when working with children is, like, you'll see them at the edition and they're magic and they're great. And, and it turns you... out it was their wife's direction. Well, yeah. <laughs> For married children. <laughs> or it's, like, it's one of those things where, like, and then you bring them back for the call back three weeks later. Their parents get really excited. They know they're up for the part. So their parents spend three weeks rehearsing them. And then all of a sudden they walk in and they have these, like, Broadway, like, I'm the king of the forest, and they have, like, hand motions, and they've, like, prepared because they get so excited, and they want to do a really good job, and they lose that naturalness. So I'm betting that advice you originally read somewhere was more about non-actors, children, non-professionals, people who might spend, like, weeks with their romantic partner or sibling preparing, like, a really dialed-in performance that you can never break them out of once they get to set. Whereas I think John's advice is perfect for, like, professional actors that have skill, that are really caring about the work. Like, they should obviously be, like, it's step one to get them off book. Um, but then, you know, with kids, I, I've i definitely, with kids and non-actors, like, deliberately you audition them on something that's not the same script, and then you give them a different script on the same day. Mm-hmm. Because otherwise they get really rehearsed in this thing that, like, it's hard to break them out of. And something to look for in auditions, too, you know, is uh, if you feel as if an actor is giving, like, a very stagey performance or, you know, came in prepared with the beats that they're supposed to hit. um, And you can tell that maybe something that you should do to make sure that you're getting the right actor is to give them an action to then place on top of the monologue that they gave you or whatever they material they used to audition with. And that way you can see that that versatility is really in place um, where it needs to be. Cool. Thanks, John and Charles. And thanks for your question, Larry. Good luck. Now for some indie movies you can see this week. So coming to Netflix on May 26th is War Machine. And I think we'd say that this is one of Netflix's most highly anticipated original movie releases this year. Um, as to of yet, uh, I know Oakja is coming out in uh, June, and that's one to look out for. 
But this one has some anticipation behind it because Brad Pitt is the lead, and he's actually kind of back into this character that we saw him in with Inglorious Bastards, which is a movie that we talked about last week on the show. Pitt plays a successful, charismatic four-star general who leapt in like a rock star to command NATO forces in Afghanistan, only to be taken down by journalist's no-holds-barred expose. It's written and directed by David Michaud. On Hulu, I missed this title last week, but I think it's worth kind of focusing on or singling out because it was big at South by Southwest. You can check out Becoming Bond now. And this is a documentary that, as I said, premiered at South by Southwest earlier this year, where it actually won the Audience Award in the Visions category. The Visions category is a very interesting and very exciting category because, you know, it's it's like Sundance's next category. It's where you see all the stuff that's kind of uh, supposed to push the medium forward in some way. Uh, so to see this a documentary win that award, I think, is something worth uh, pointing out. The documentary tells the stranger-than-fiction true story of the least appreciated Bond, George Lazenby, who I don't know because I'm too young, but do you guys have any Bond fans? No? Yeah, on Her Majesty's Secret Service, the guy who did one. Yeah. And so what I didn't know about him was that he was a poor Australian car mechanic who just kind of talked his way into this role uh, on Her Majesty's Secret Service, despite having never acted a day in his life. So, as Charles was saying, perhaps even more unbelievable is how he turned down an offer for the next seven Bond films and a $1 million signing bonus just to, I guess, go back to Australia. And he only did that one movie. The documentary is directed by Josh Greenbaum, and like I said, it's on Hulu. You can check it out now. And I will take that opportunity to wish a peaceful rest to arguably the suavest of the Bonds, Roger Moore, who passed away this week. Rest in peace. What about Pierce Brosnan? That's my generation's Bond. Baby. I'm a Timothy Dalton guy. (laughs) Oh, please. Sean Connery is the best. But, you know, Roger was pretty smooth. Anyhow, arriving on VOD earlier this week is a beautiful film called AWOL, directed by Deb Chauval. Uh, It stars Lola Kirk and Brita Wool as an on-again, off-again couple. And uh, I saw the film this past week. I'm really looking forward to interviewing the director. We've, we had actually put this movie on our most anticipated list during Tribeca 2016, where it ended up being nominated for the Best U.S. Narrative Feature. Um, Deb Chauval aims to raise awareness of women's issues with her work, particularly on a subject close to her heart, lesbian women in rural America. The film's a tender representation of the lesbian female gaze, which, you know, we don't see very often on film, and it tackles a very underrepresented view of lesbian relationships, particularly in film. And I, I really think this is a, I mean, it is a gay love story, but I think it's one that a really wide audience will be able to relate to because it has to do with so many issues that we're all dealing with today and actually the ones that sort of led to our current um, political situation because it deals with low-income, rural, white Americans, you know, and, and military service and kind of a lot of the issues that uh, middle America deals with, um, just with this extra sort of romance component. It's just, it's subtle and beautifully acted, and yeah, I really enjoyed it. And when you say tender representation of the lesbian female gaze, it's not G-A-Y-S gaze, it's G-A-Z-E gaze, right? Yes. Good. It's also not G-L-A-Z-E, because they are not donuts. Oh, G-L, glaze. The lesbian glaze. <laughs> it's kind of, it's actually kind of... 
juicy. I'm I'm shocked that nowhere in Park Slope can you get a lesbian glaze. That's, that's an excellent point. Hmm. Donut plank, get on it. Anyhow, coming to theaters on the 26th is Berlin Syndrome, which was one of Emily's favorites from Sundance last year. It's directed by another female director, Kate Shortland, and it's another romantic movie. This time, it's a passionate holiday romance that leads to an obsessive relationship when an Australian photojournalist wakes one morning in a Berlin apartment and is unable to leave. Uh, John writes that Emily liked it a lot because it was sexy. Yes, she did. Lesbian glaze. In her interview, lead actress Teresa Palmer reminisced on rehearsals saying, quote, there was one exercise where the choreographer would put something that smelled a certain way, like spearmint or lavender, on a different part of our body, and we were blindfolded and had to try to find the smell on another person's body. That helped with the intimacy, too, not being afraid to get into each other's physical space. It's a weird tactic. I am not going to use it on a future podcast. <laughs> also, the choreographer, are, are there dance sequences? I think sex choreography is a thing. Ah. Um, yeah, it's it's a, probably a little less tender of a romance because it's about this woman who's abducted, kind of, but still sexy, according to Emily. Up next, we've got some grant deadlines. Uh, first up is the NEH Digital Projects for the Public. It's due June 7th. This supports projects that cogently interpret and analyze humanities content in formats that will attract broad public audiences. So they offer three levels of support for digital projects, grants for discovery projects, which are like really early stage planning work, prototyping projects, proof of concept development work, and production projects, end stage production and distribution work. If you have a digital humanities project, you should definitely consider applying because the NEH only receives an average of 140 applicants per year, and they give out 11 awards, a funding ratio of 8%, which doesn't seem high, but I bet everybody else's funding ratio is 0.1%. Yeah, yeah. So that's amazingly high, and you should totally take a look. And on June 30th, which is kind of a ways away, is the deadline for ScreenCraft Spring 2017 Short Film Production Fund. This is a competition put on by ScreenCraft and Bondit. If you've got a short script or a short film at the early stages of production, you could score $5,000 to $20,000 in financing and production services. This is awarded every four months, um, and at least one filmmaker will be awarded the production grant of up to $20,000 in production funds. Winners are announced six weeks after each final deadline, so six weeks after June 30th. And there's some festival deadlines coming up. The Oaxaca Film Festival has a deadline of May 31st. It takes place from October 6th to the 13th in Oaxaca, Mexico. People rave about this festival and about this place. I have some friends who got married there and can't say enough good things about it. Uh, it's one of the top 50 film festivals worth the entry fee, as named by Movie Maker Magazine. And it's also very cheap to submit your film, which is a plus. It's the final deadline, but it's still only 14 bucks to enter. And also on May 31st, the San Jose Short Film Festival has its regular deadline. This takes place from October 19th to 22nd in San Jose, California. And it is also one of the top 50 Movie Maker Magazine film festivals, as most of these are because they're well curated. They are accepting short films from every genre or style with run times from 60 seconds up to 30 minutes in length. This year, they will have an expanded focus on animation, and they're opening up submissions for television web series pilots for the first time ever. Uh, coming up June 2nd is the deadline for the Toronto International Film Festival. This is one of the premier festivals in the world, like the top five, Toronto's in it. 
uh, takes place this year from September 7th to 17th, 2017. Um, now, Film School covered the fest extensively last year. It's a big launching pad for emerging directors. This is the absolute final no-holds-barred deadline. But if you've got a great short you think could really take the world by storm, you might as well go for it June 2nd. And finally, our newest segment, Weekly Words of Wisdom, which I feel like also needs some sort of sound effect. We'll work on it. I want John to kick it off because his wise words are kind of an extension of the Ask No Film School question he answered earlier. Yeah, so I actually wrote an article this week entitled How to Make Your Actors Angry Like Jack Nicholson. And it kind of delves into exactly what we were talking about earlier about sort of having the circumstances in place uh, as an actor to give a truthful performance. Um, So a lot of times we get questions on the boards that are like, how do I get my actors to act right? Which I interpret to mean, how do I get a more truthful performance out of them? And that's like one of the questions we answered today. As I said, many directors are very quick to jump in and give line readings. And I think that there's a stigma around that, not for the right reason. I think that most directors think that line readings are going to be bad because you're like hurting your actor's feelings or whatever. But line readings are bad because you're giving a like the actors a quick fix, essentially. Um, and it's not something that will stick around for the rest of the movie. These actors need to have their circumstances in place. They need to know what's going on. This will allow them to get to the emotional point represented in your scene that you want them to get to. So you should be asking your actor questions about how they've reached that point in their journey. For example, if their character is angry, what are the psychological steps that drove them to this place of fury? So Jack Nicholson is a great example of that because he can, like, you can see in his performances when he's angry, there's some underlying emotion underneath that the anger is coming from. When actors throw around the term the craft, what they really mean is the crafting of circumstances that put the actor in the position to act out an emotion when it is called for in a scene. Anger is a good example of this, and it's an easy one to see because it often comes in the form of a release. Uh, so like a discharge of pent up feelings that have been generating throughout the action of the film that you can kind of even take a pen to and be like, okay, this happened here and that affected his psychology because of this reason. And then, oh, okay. And then this happened to ratchet up his psychological reaction. And he's like going through all these things and these things and these things. And it's those steps that will allow the actor Um, when fully realized, to become super pissed off, (laughs) essentially. So for the actor, the next step lies in finding the gestures and forms of release that are unique to this particular character's brand of anger. As always, it should arise from the character's personality. And that's enough talking about acting for me for one day. All right, so my words of wisdom came from uh, Loretta Provost, who had a great article this week called The Best Things You Can Do for Your DP Career Offset, Part 1, Relationships, uh, which wasn't about dating and, like, how to have a personal life while working in movies. 30 Rock has covered that well. But it was about, like, the long-term relationships with vendors and other people you work with in the industry. And something I really took from that article was, from a career perspective, sticking with a small number of rental houses makes the most sense. And, like, this is so true when you're starting out and climbing the ladder. When you're at the top of the game and you're doing a studio movie, you can get, like, Sinhalese to bid against, you know, 
wooden nickel to get bid against everybody else and get to that place where you're like really hammering out the best. But really, while you're climbing, it makes the most sense to develop regular relationships with vendors. They'll hook you up with the occasional deal on your passion project or the little thing you're just shooting for your reel. But then when you get the bigger budget full rate thing, go back to them repay the favor that they did for you. I see this all the time with DPs and colorists where like a DP is like growing and making their bones and this favor this colorist keeps cutting them favors and then they book a big commercial and they immediately go to like the biggest color house in town and they pay through the nose at the big color house and I'm like but what about that little colorist who just colored like 15 music videos for you for barely break even? Like shouldn't you repay that favor by giving them the bigger rate. Sometimes the clients won't let you. Sometimes the clients will only approve a certain company. But I think it's good to try, as you are climbing, to remember that it's a relationship not just with the directors you meet and the clients you meet, but it's also all of your vendors. It's a relationship-based business. And if you're going to be asking favors in the future, you want to develop those. I really like that post, too. I thought it was full of great tips for sort of building longevity as a DP. Speaking of career longevity, I also wanted to give a little plug to a a post written by Sophia Harvey called 10 Steps to Writing the Perfect Prospectus. I think for many of us, the business part of filmmaking can feel very daunting. And Sophia has done a really detailed breakdown of exactly what needs to be in the document, essentially a business plan that you're handing to potential investors in your film. It's a little dry, it's a little tricky, but on the other hand, we can't make our films without it. Uh, One of the things she advises is to choose a couple of films that are comparable to yours in terms of genre and market, and then translate them into revenue models by looking up each film's performance on sites like The Numbers and Box Office Mojo. This stuff is all out there and available now in a way it wasn't, you know, 20 years ago. So Sophia says, basically, you should be able to find the screen count, number of weeks, and weekly box office for each. Put some or all of this info into tables for your investors to see. Then, using some guesswork and your comp films as reference, build the same table for your film. Estimate the number of screens, weeks, and revenue. It's best to do this three times, generating low, medium, and high estimates. And those are your revenue projections. It's actually pretty straightforward. And in reading this post, I was like, okay, I can do that. And I bet you will too. You can find links to all the articles that we just talked about on this week's podcast post. But in the meantime, I'm very excited for next Monday's interview podcast, since it was probably the most entertaining conversation I've had since we started the show last January. And it's about one of the most memorable films I saw at this year's Tribeca, I interviewed co-directors Josephine Decker and Zephyr Thrall from the opening night documentary Flames, along with Ashley Connard, the DP who filmed them having sex. So we talk about the blurred lines between documentary fiction and porn and the female glaze, and I think you'll really enjoy it. You can read all this and more on nofilmschool.com. Please subscribe to the No Film School podcast and rate us with those five juicy stars on iTunes. And stay in touch. I'm at Liz Film on Twitter. I'm at Charles Hayne on Twitter. I'm at Jim underscore John underscore Jim. Jim John Jim. Jim John Jim. Jim John Jim. Jim Jim Jim. <laughs> I'll be Emily for a day. So thanks a lot for listening and see you next week. Fun facts. Fun facts.